Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasida from Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Peter Bagshaw, GP and CCG Lead for Mental Health. And today is the first of our Living Well With series, and we're really pleased to welcome Dr. Tom McConnell, consultant cardiologist from Somerset on Living Well With Heart Disease. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much for inviting me. And Tom, I... I don't know if you agree, but I, I get a lot of patients who who find when they've had a heart attack, particularly, it very, very difficult to get on with life because it, it's very unusual in, in that you can go from feeling completely well to being near to death's door. So how is that an experience you share and, and how do you deal with that? So uh, heart, heart disease is disappointingly common in our Western society. Um, But I think the consequence of heart disease over the last 50 years has changed enormously. Uh, In my, on my shelf here, I have an Oxford textbook of medicine that I bought when I was sitting my membership. And in that Oxford textbook of medicine, it says that the mortality from a heart attack at 30 days is more than 30%. That was 1985. The mortality from heart attack today is at 30 days is around 3 to 5%. What still is out there is that knowledge of heart disease being really bad for you. Uh, and, and so part of what your patient experiences, I believe, is that emotional response to having a heart attack, which we as a society still have. Whereas the, the reality for most people who have a heart attack now is they should make a very good recovery from it. So some of what your patients are experiencing is what their head's saying, even though that hasn't been the consequence for their body. That's a really interesting comment, Tom, and so positive. And it's a tribute um, to primary prevention, but it's a real tribute to the interventions that you and your colleagues have made and the great strides and advances with with stents and with anticoagulation and and uh, other things over the years. Can I just take you back to what made you go into cardiology and what have been the major changes that if you have seen? And then we can talk about all the other aspects of living well with it. So I, I sat my membership at a time when I was a medical student. I wanted to be a general physician. That was what I I was a third-year medical student, went on to general medical ward. There was a a physician who was just about to retire who just had us on the end of his stethoscope. We thought he was brilliant, Uh, uh, Professor Manderson. Um, So I wanted to be a physician. Um, And in fact, I had, when I was a house officer, my uncle, who was a GP in Glasgow, offered me the opportunity to to join the family practice, which I said, well, I wasn't quite ready. And, and so I followed my star and went on, got my membership. But at that time, um, it, it was becoming clear that you had to have a specialty. Um, and I quite enjoyed endocrinology, 
But I knew that if I did endocrinology, I would end up doing diabetes that I wasn't quite so interested in. And, and I didn't really fancy chest medicine. It was all spit and stuff. And I won't talk about gastroenterology. You know what that involves. <laughs> so, so, so I just went for a nice, clean specialty called cardiology, which is this interesting hybrid between being a physician where we talk to our patients and being a surgeon where we do stuff. Uh, and cardiology kind of sits between the two. Uh, because we definitely have to listen to people and understand their story. Uh, but, but we also get the opportunity to intervene and hopefully change the natural history of what happens to them. And you in your career have seen the great changes in interventional cardiology, which might have almost been a dream when you started, uh, when you were a medical student. Indeed. Uh, you know, certainly when I was a medical student, uh, coronary angiography, where we look at the blood supply to people's heart muscle, happened only really in a, a, a number of tertiary centres throughout the country. So probably no more than, certainly in 1980s, probably no more than 10, 20 places, if that, certainly, certainly 10, but possibly not 20. Uh, whereas now, angiography, looking at coronary arteries, happens in just about every district general hospital in the, in the country. And, and the other thing about when I started in 1984, uh, unfortunately, you had a heart attack. You blocked one of the arteries supplying your heart muscle with blood. The heart muscle was irreparably damaged. And we dealt with the consequences of that damage without the tools that we now have. So the first thing that happened was we had the, uh, and people were experimenting in the 80s, was clot dissolving medicines, which restored the blood supply to the heart muscle and got it working well uh, in, in a significant amount of people. Um, and then in the 90s, we started to exploring mechanically opening, rather than with clot dissolving medicines, but mechanically opening arteries with balloons and stents. And that was even better than the, the thrombolysis. So we, we've moved to, to that in the, in the noughties and tens. Uh, so I have seen that journey uh, and participated in that journey, contributed to it. So it, it's, it, and there is nothing more satisfying than someone coming in with an ECG, which shows an acute heart attack, uh, and opening up the artery and seeing the ECG going back to normal. That is one of the little uh, buzz points that one gets. And you've laid one of the myths about heart attacks already. The, one of the other things that, that certainly I saw at the beginning of my career, and a lot of patients still believe, is that if you've had one heart attack, you're going to get another one very soon after and that will probably kill you. But I imagine that's nowadays a myth as well, isn't it? Uh, very true, Peter. It is a myth because that ultimately our survival after a heart attack depends on how much damage is done. And if we can intervene early, there's less damage done. So your survival is better. Um, the other thing that has changed enormously in our careers has been those interventions that we can make that that modify the damage that's happened so it doesn't have the consequences it once had. Uh, things like ACE inhibitors make protect ventricles from getting big and baggy, uh, preserve that function that they still have. But but the other 
interventions that we have are those preventative interventions, our knowledge about the medicines like aspirin and cholesterol-lowering medicines like statins, but also our knowledge of the importance of eating the right things, the healthy diet, taking the right exercise, uh, being careful about our habits like smoking, stopping smoking. And we know that if you do those lifestyle modifications, including those lowering cholesterol and aspirin, good blood pressure control, you can reduce cardio, subsequent cardiovascular risk by 60, 70%. Um, you, I, 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 and, and so you can definitely, as an individual who might have had the misfortune to suffer an early heart attack, never have another heart attack because you're doing the right things to protect yourself against another heart attack. And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows I bang on about these things incessantly. So you've mentioned exercise. And again, a, a I hope it's a myth. A, a lot of people come in and say they're really worried about exercising if they've had a heart attack because they're worried it will it will trigger another heart attack. Is is that another myth you can slay for us? Very happily slay it. But but I also have to say something about what we have to be aware of as healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals often say things as an off-the-cuff remark or what have you. But and whilst we might have said it almost in passing for the person who hears it, it's really important. So we as healthcare professionals have to be really careful with our language. And we have to be so careful that we are not the cause of people's disability. So uh, the Tom McConnell approach to, to how do I avoid that potential trap is that I never say to people, you can only do. I, I, what my line is, it's up to you to find out what you can do. I want you to build it up steadily, five minutes at a time. Um, and you might do your five minutes, that's fine. Come back and do another five minutes if you feel I'm fine. Keep going, keep building it up and do it steadily. Because what I want is I want you to be fitter than you were before whatever event I happen to have met you for. Uh, and the only way you're going to do that is to steadily build up what you do. And the other thing that I say to people, which is echoed no matter what cardiology journal or society you listen to, or, and it's true as much for respiratory medicine as it is for cardiac medicine, that as long as you can talk to someone while you're doing whatever form of activity it is, you are perfectly safe. Keep doing it. That's really interesting, Tom. And I'm, 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 I love your permissive, supportive and empowering approach to, to help people, a very heart-centred approach for, for a cardiologist. Um, and that's what it should be about. And the word exercise, of course, jars slightly for some of us because we, we conjure up images of, ly of lycra and gyms and feel fearful. So perhaps we should be using the word activity to help people. Um, yeah. If you've never been a gym person, you're never going to be a gym person. <laughs> Thank you. Another benefit of your approach is we, we have a saying in the dementia world, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So not only do the sort of things that you encourage people who've had heart attacks to do help reduce their risk of subsequent heart attacks, it also reduces their risk of dementia, uh, improves brain function and helps their mental health as well, of course. Yes. And we shouldn't forget that we as human beings were 
designed as hunter-gatherers. Um, and we don't really, uh, we have lost our activity levels uh, in 21st century world. Uh, so, so, yeah, we need to take more activity because it's, it, it's how we're designed to work. Thank you. Moving away from cardiovascular disease, so it's the sort of the diseased arteries and narrowed arteries, but thinking about another common condition, which would be a rhythm disturbance, uh, atrial fibrillation um, and living well with it. Could you just explain for us what atrial fibrillation is, why it's, it's significant and important, and um, what we could do about it and what we should do about it? So our hearts are, are four-chambered pumps. There are uh, two chambers that pump blood round our lungs, two chambers that pump blood round our bodies. If one thinks about the left side of your heart, which pumps blood round your body, there is the left atria and there's a the left ventricle. What the atria does is it primes the ventricle so it's ready to work at its most efficient. If you're a car buff, it's the turbocharger. That's what it does. It just primes the pump so as it works better. When we go from the normal, regular sinus rhythm into the irregular atrial fibrillation, what happens is that turbocharger, that pump primer, loses its mechanical activity. And in losing its mechanical activity, the pattern of, of the electrical activity that stimulates it is lost as well. And the, the pump, the left ventricle, does its best to follow that. And so it will often go a bit faster than it should do, than it's needed to go at for the particular activity level. And for a, a pump, that's bad news because for a pump to work well, it needs to be properly filled and it needs to go at an appropriate rate. And so when someone goes into atrial fibrillation, how that might manifest itself, what symptoms someone might feel, they might be aware of that irregularity in their heartbeat. But more often they notice a change in their ability to do stuff because they're breathless, because their heart's not pumping as effectively as it should do. Um, so that's the first consequence of atrial fibrillation. The second consequence of atrial fibrillation is because you've lost that mechanical activity, that movement in your left atria, and there's a little pouch called your atrial appendage that just sticks off the side of it, and that blood is not flowing through that in a regular way. It can stagnate there, that there's a danger of clot forming in that. And that clot has the potential to migrate somewhere else, including to your brain. And so it can cause something like a stroke. Uh, and so in our treatment of atrial fibrillation, what we want to do is manage these two issues. Firstly, to control your heart rate so it works, your heart will pump more efficiently. And secondly, to mitigate against that risk of blood clot, which might cause a stroke. Thank you. I think that's extremely clear and, and very reassuring. And I see a lot of people with atrial fibrillation who, who feel that irregularity and think that means they're going to have a heart attack. So it's reassuring to hear that, that that's not. There's another aspect, and you touched on shortness of breath. So 
another variant of heart disease, which um, <laughs> I've got skin in the game. You, you kindly have treated my post-COVID heart failure. And so I can personally attest that going from being somebody who's able to do um, uh, freestyle fighting in, in karate as a black belt uh, to somebody who, who gets extremely short of breath and feels they're going to keel over and die when they walk up a slope is a, is a fairly scary thing to happen. Can, can you tell us a little bit about heart failure and the consequences of that? And again, hopefully that it's a, a slightly more optimistic story than it was years ago. Can I start with an anecdote? So when I was probably about 10, I remember sitting with my grandfather who had heart failure from the consequence of a heart attack. And there was no one else in the room and my grandfather stopped breathing and then started breathing again. And as a 10-year-old, I thought he had died. What I now know is actually he had chain stokes breathing from his heart failure. And chain stokes is very much the end stage of, of heart failure, which hasn't been treated. I don't think I can remember the last time I saw someone chain stoking, and that's a testament to the treatments we now have for heart failure. That when you have heart failure, what happens is that left ventricle, that pump, the, the muscle which makes it contract is damaged for whatever reason. And what the body tries to do is compensate for that because how our bodies, usually when things like our kidneys or brain didn't have enough perfusion, not enough blood going to them. That was because we had lost fluid. We had a saber-toothed tiger had had a chew at our leg or something like that, and we'd lost some blood. So if we could stimulate the heart to work a bit harder and stimulate our body to retain fluid, that we might have a better chance of survival. If the fundamental problem is that the heart as a pump is not working, to make it, to, to flog it a bit harder, to retain fluid just makes the problem even worse. And what we now have are very effective treatments to, to counteract those effects of the body on the heart. And by doing that with ACE inhibitors, with beta blockers, uh, with aldosterone antagonists, with neprilysin inhibitors, with some of these SGL2 drugs, we now have a whole panoply of medications that change the natural history of that heart muscle dysfunction. So that what was a disease that you could die within a year or two of developing is now very much a chronic condition, which with the right medications and the right rehabilitations, you wouldn't know that people had in, in the vast majority of people. And I can personally attest to the benefits of, of your excellent treatment. Perhaps we should rename it. You know, if you say heart failure, that implies a, a terminal disease, doesn't it? Something that's going to happen to you um, pretty inevitably and, and quite quickly. Maybe we should use words like dysfunction a little bit more often, do you think? 
definitely it has become you know and it, again it's this fascinating thing about language and, and what our language says to people isn't it uh, and and the other thing one has to say about heart treatment of heart failure we'll use the word is we talk about a thing called your ejection fraction when our heart contracts it never completely empties and so you often see in letters ejection fraction 55% that is normal but for us who live in this uh, world of uh, exams and stuff like that, 55% isn't really that we, we normal to 100% in fact for for your ejection fraction because it's differencing that the heart never completely empties it, it, the ejection fraction should be 55% or above so 55% is okay so, so that's quite an important thing to, to just get out there uh, because sometimes, uh, and we don't always say that, so we ha- very much have to be careful in how we quali- what we qualify to people when we describe things to them. Thank you, Tom. A couple of questions now on, on the mind and the heart, because some of the symptoms of heart disease, such as palpitations, can be similar to symptoms of anxiety or other other things that we can have if, if our mental health isn't uh, optimal. How can people be sure which is which? Unfortunately, you can't see me smiling at your good question, Andrew. Um, first and foremost, what are you able to do? Can you go up the stairs? No problem. Can you walk up a slope? Can you do your shopping? Can you do the things that you need to do in life normally? And if you can do all the things you need to do in life normally without any important limitation, chances are it's fine. You know, that would be my first comment, uh, that if you can do stuff and not worry about it, not be aware of it, then you're unlikely to come to any harm. What always is interesting to the cardiologist is change. So increasing symptoms of chest tightness when you do something. That, that hill that I could walk up, I can't walk up anymore. I have to stop halfway up. But coming back to the specific question about palpitations is we all get palpitations in its broadest sense of the word. If I put a heart rhythm monitor on you, chances are I will get one or two ventricular or atrial ectopic beats in that 24-hour period of monitoring. It's for, for most people, they are there. Some people will become more aware of them. And the time that one is more likely to become aware of benign palpitations, palpitations which are disconcerting, but which you won't come to harm from, are when you're sitting resting or when you're lying in bed at night. And often what people will notice is they might notice a missed beat, um, an irregularity. uh, And that's disconcerting. And, And we say, oh, that's not right. My heart shouldn't do that. And so we start looking for it. And um, we're probably a wee bit anxious, so we'll release a wee bit of adrenaline. And one of the things that adrenaline does is it makes our heart a wee bit more excitable. So you might have another one. You think, well, that's really not right. And, and so it can become self-fulfilling. Uh, and one of the things I find really helpful is I will often talk to people about 
the physiology of ectopic beats because typically it will come a little bit earlier. So, so the reason you often feel a miss is that the ventricle, the, the pumping chamber isn't quite so well stretched. So it doesn't, because it's not as full because it hasn't had as long to fill. So it doesn't have to beat as hard. So you can feel that miss. But what then happens is there's a compensatory pause. And so often the beat after an ectopic beat, people will be aware of it being stronger than they would expect. Um, because the ventricle has been filled more because it's had longer to fill after the compensatory pause. Uh, because of the compensatory pause, the muscle is more stretched. So it beats harder and you're aware of it. And so as a cardiologist, when I get that, you, you describe this physiology and you get that little look in someone's eye. He's just described what I experience. And you can say with absolute certainty that's an ectopic beat you're getting. You're not, you've described how you can do your shopping. You go to the gym. There's nothing there to worry about. Uh, and, and it's in the story and the, that little glint as you explain what's going on and suddenly think, yep, that's what it is. That's so helpful to hear. And putting it the other way around, does if you have heart disease of some sort, and we've talked about a number, can, can that affect people's mental health in particular ways or make them more susceptible to anxiety? Or is it just the general aspect of we are bereaved from being healthy, whatever our illness is, and so we go through adjustment and anxiety and distress and upset? We are complicated beings, um, which, is the, which is the horse and which is the cart. I don't know. That that I think the important thing is to listen and understand what the concern is. Uh, none of us like uncertainty. We, uh, and to have a problem with your heart just reminds us that you're mortal. Uh, and with all the stuff that comes with that, um, uh, and I can remember as a senior registrar having one of the consultants I worked with describing younger ladies who had genuine palpitations, who had AV nodal reentry tachycardias, who had proper heart rhythm upsets. And he made the observation he was never sure what drove what. Uh, but, but, but certainly in the history, uh, there will be palpitations which will make your doctor listen. Uh, and there are interventions that we can make that can stop those palpitations from happening. Um, so so it, is about, it is about listening to people and then one can solve the, or improve the quality of people's life by listening and, and getting to the bottom of it and sorting it out for them. Tom, you've taken us most helpfully through a number of negatives and been able to dispel some of our myths. But thinking on the positive, um, are there any emotions, are there any frames of mind that are good for the heart? Um, anecdotally, years ago, you'd, you might hear that people who are furious or in a high rage actually could clot their arteries. Is there any evidence that, um, because it changes your clotting factors and other things if you've got some um, predisposing ischemic heart disease, is there any evidence that being kind, that emotions of kindness and compassion and positive heartfelt emotions are actually good for the physical heart as well? 
happy people live longer. Content people live longer. Uh, I, in the rounds, obviously, there are exceptions, but the other thing which definitely adds to you, what you're saying, Andrew, is the, the, the Takotosubu syndrome. Yes, please tell us what that is. So Takotosubu, it is a descriptive term, and the description is the shape of the heart, which we see in this condition. And the shape of the heart resembles a Japanese lobster pot, which is called a Takotosubu. Right. And what's happening in this condition? So what is happening there is people have experienced an emotional stress or a physical stress, and their heart responds with an area becoming stunned. Uh, and that stunning can have life-threatening consequence. So there is undoubtedly a very clear link between what we feel and what can happen to her hearts. Uh, uh, and again, with the right treatment, uh, we can modify the natural history of that condition. So going back to the positive, if we can remain calm, happy, content, positive, we've got a chance of not only adding uh, life to our years, but years to our life. Is that right? Absolutely, Peter. What a great note to end on. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today and keep up all your great work. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group. <laughs>